Hello, and welcome to October's IBMS pod. In this episode, we're joined by Cancer Genomics Project Manager, Deborah Lakeland, after which we catch up with Charlotte Felton to discuss public engagement. But first up, as always, hot off the press, here are the news headlines. IBMS Fellow Professor Tony Rhodes has been appointed the new editor of our journal, the British Journal of Biomedical Science. Following his appointment, Tony told the IBMS, it is truly a great honour to take on the role of editor. I hope to widen the scope of the journal and importantly, ensure that it remains a journal of the practising biomedical scientist. We look forward to seeing many of you in Birmingham next year for Congress 2022. Be sure to register soon to take advantage of the early booking rates, which close on the 31st of October. Thinking of submitting a poster for Congress? If you've been working on something that is novel, interesting and relevant to biomedical science that you think others would like to know about, we want to hear from you. The deadline to submit your poster is the 15th of October. Congratulations to all of the winners of the 2022 Mary McDonald Bursary, who were announced last month. The bursary sponsors free places for non-HCPC registered members to attend the Biomedical Support Staff Program at IBMS Congress. Visit our website to find out more about all of our stories. Okay, today on the IBMS pod, we are joined by Deborah Lakeland. Now, Deborah is a Cancer Genomics Project Manager at the Lancashire and South Cumbria Cancer Alliance, but she has worn and continues to wear many different hats. So, Deborah, can you please give us a quick overview of your career and what you do at the moment? Yes. Hi, thank you, Rob, and the, uh, thanks for the introduction. Um, so, I'm a healthcare scientist um, and a biomedical scientist by definition. I have over 30 years experience working in clinical laboratories in the NHS. I started out in transfusion and hematology and coagulation uh, in South Wales and migrated eventually into immunology. I came back to work in the Northwest. Um, And then I had the opportunity to work on the 100,000 Genomes Project and into the wonderful world of molecular pathology and genomics. And, uh, and last year I was doing coronavirus testing and reporting uh, tests, testing surveillance uh, data to the, um, the government hub. Um, so I, I have had, as you say, a, a lot of hats during that, that 30 year career. And um, as well as all the clinical work you do, you do a lot of leadership, networking, mentoring. Can you tell us a bit about that and how and why you got into that side of things? Yes, so um, I have undertaken a um, CSO-wise leadership in healthcare science uh, development programme and um, I needed a project for that which I liaised with um, my local football team, Preston North End Football Club, and they have a community and education trust. And between us, we created a program of genomics education, which we uh, developed that was de- delivered in schools in Preston. So kids got to learn about genomics and they got to do um, DNA extraction on their spit and, and make necklaces and bracelets and um, generally learn about, you know, how, how they come to be and, and how. DNA affects their health, that kind of thing, but also got an experience of how to be a 
healthcare scientists as well in schools, and it went down really well. Um, I also um, lead a, a molecular pathology education program within my um, immediate network. So this is to upskill my uh, pathology colleagues um, and to introduce them to the concept of, of genomics and the advances that, that will likely come into um, their practice and in, in the fullness of time. Um, I've liaised with the Genomic Laboratory Hub in Manchester and we created a genomics masterclass which um, all cancer professionals in the Northwest were invited to and were 250 people registered for that event. Um, I've delivered talks at national oncology conferences talking about how genomics is driving um, change in personalised medicine. So, um, and, and I mentor um, uh, biomedical scientist students that, that are starting out as where I did 30 years ago. And what, so, what, what drives all this there? Because the, the, there's so much going on there. But is it a love of genomics or is it a love of communication or is it people? What makes you do it? Um, I think... I think it's a love of genomics. I think, you know, a bit of a genomics geek now. Um, it really is going to transform healthcare. So uh, I'm eager to get the message out so that people who will encounter this in clinic appointments will have understanding both from um, the patient perspective and also from the professional perspective to be informed how to have those conversations around genetic testing. So. We're at a point now where um, through the 100,000 Genomes Project, where um, whole genome sequencing, which is um, sequencing 3 billion A, T, C and G DNA bases, um, has become a, a routine um, thing in the NHS whereby people with rare diseases can find out what is the, the underlying genetic cause of the disease? Um, and, and often they, these are patients that have been on a diagnostic odyssey. So they've been bounced around different medical specialties and it's not been clear as to what their diagnosis is. But increasingly now with whole genome sequencing, they're able to get a diagnosis and sometimes a treatment from that. With um, cancers, um, we're able now to determine where people might have adverse drug reactions to uh, anti-cancer therapies. And this information is derived from their genetics. So if the genetic makeup is kind of incompatible with the drug, uh, we, we can tell that in advance so that we identify those people that are at risk and they then can have an alternative treatment. Also, um, or uh, we can also use genetic information to identify inherited cancers and, and those patients at risk of developing those cancers in okay. advance of that happening. So they can have increased surveillance and monitoring and, and where cancer is detected earlier, there is more opportunity for successful treatment. And. The, the, the work you're describing and the area of genomics is in, incredibly complex um, 
I've written about it. I've edited copy. I still don't fully understand it and doubt I ever will. How on earth do you manage to, when, when you talk about outreach work where you're working with schools, how on earth do you communicate such a complex topic in a way that can be digestible by people who aren't coming with the kind of background you've got? I mean, is that where we talked about, you mentioned football earlier. Do, do you use stuff like that as a means to communicate scientific information? How, how do you go about it? Um, I think it's just distilling it down to its most basic form, really, and using um, gameplay as well. So, uh, for example, uh, the concept of genetic sequencing is all, you know, letters uh, in a sequence, one after another, and using beads, different coloured beads on a cord that follow a, a pattern. So if you're given a, you know, a tiger DNA pattern is a red, yellow, yellow, blue, green. And, you know, it's just sort of getting children used to the concept of different letters in a sequence and, and different sequences code for different outcomes. Um, and, and that's gone down really well. And, and if some of your kind of networking leadership work has been around kind of trying to get women uh, into STEM as well. Does, well, why do we need more women in STEM and what kind of impact is that going to have when you are successful and we do have more women? Oh, yeah, this is a really good point, Rob. Thank you for mentioning that. So um, obviously, women are a large part of the healthcare workforce, but they are very underrepresented in STEM careers and also in leadership roles as well. So. Um, I'm obviously very keen to where, where I can signpost um, the great work that women in leadership roles do. And also, this is where I got the opportunity to do the leadership um, development course with CSO Wise team. And um, that's, that's certainly opened a lot of doors for me and um, developed my own individual leadership potential. Um, I'm also in talks to developed some learning with um, Newcastle University. Uh, they have a programme of prom promoting women in science. Um, and, yeah, I'm just really keen that women, you know, we are, we are half the, 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 the population on the planet and, and we should be given more opportunity. And where um, we are shining and excelling, we should be shining a light on that. Brilliant. And just quickly before I pass you over to Jordan to talk about genomics a bit more, if someone's listening and they're interested in leadership, what one piece of advice would you give them? What, what one thing would you say can make someone a good leader or that they should think about before becoming a leader? So I think a good leader is someone who has um, a positivity about them and is able to win others over and is very enthusiastic about their field of work and, and can carry that enthusiasm in the team and take that team with them to, to innovate and to grow both themselves and the service that they're um, providing. Brilliant. On that nice positive note, Deborah, I'm going to pass you over to Jordan. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Jordan. So you've touched just, just now on a genomics medicine and how we're using information about 
person's genes to help improve clinical outcomes and improve their medical care. And I know you were involved in the 100,000 Genomes Project, the government which aimed to sequence 100,000 patients' whole genome. So could you tell me a little bit more about that project and your role within it? Yes, so I was seconded in the Royal Preston Hospital to set up um, pathways and processes in the laboratory that could facilitate access uh, to whole genome sequencing as a new standard of care in the NHS for patients with rare diseases and cancers. And this was a, a programme that went on for a couple of years. I think they, they did well over 100,000 uh, genomes in the end, but um, it meant that I needed to set up from scratch um, standard operating procedures, uh, source equipment, um, create working relationships with research and surgical and pathology teams and network as well with other laboratories um, that were coordinating these requests. Um, we did um, DNA extractions on bloods and tumour tissue and um, these extracts were sent off then for sequencing at a central biopository. And, um, those reports that came back and in some cases have uh, identified genes of clinical significance and altered the clinical management of um, the patient pathway. Um, there's, there's also, uh, it, this is a really great model because where gene drug pairs or gene disease pairs um, haven't been established that, that can be acted on in a clinic, that information is fed into a research database and researchers around the world can access that and um, use that to uh, increase knowledge about what is clinically relevant. So um, it's a really exciting development for the NHS that patients that sign up to whole genome sequencing even if they, they themselves don't benefit immediately from um, the findings, you know, as new information comes to light in the research, research domain, um, it may well change the course of their uh, management in time or may uh, inform the, the care of someone else. Mm. Is the project still ongoing or has it... Um, I think that's closed now, but um, on the back of that, we are now, we have now rolled that service out into the routine practice. So from April this year, the National Genomic Medicine Service formed and a huge state-of-the-art test repertoire um, was launched in April. And um, that's online and you can view that. Um, and see all the, the weird and wonderful ways in which a genome can be interrogated and all the different uh, methodologies in use as well. It's, it's quite a heavy read. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, but, but a lot of what I do signposts people, clinicians to that and gives them tools which weren't available before. 
So, for example, we, we, um, we've had a clinician who had a patient with a sarcoma that was not very well defined. Right. She made an inquiry with the histopathology laboratory who did some literature researching and discovered that for well, this particular type of sarcoma, there, there was a potential treatment, um, but there was some genetic testing needed. So um, knowing that there are many uh, genes that are of clinical significance in sarcoma that are included in a next-generation sequencing panel, I was able to determine that this patient could access that panel. And um, within sort of a 45-minute online conversation, the clinician had gone from you know, scratching their head, wondering, you know, what can I do? What more can I do for this patient? To knowing exactly what they could do for that patient and having a result within three weeks that could potentially change the course of their cancer. So it's it's an amazing position to be in, to be able to signpost people to this test directory and give them options for treatments that weren't available before. Mm. So that's what the... 100,000 Genomes Projects have done, it's actually enabled a set of new tests to be identified. And now you, you go straight to those tests. It's not like you test each patient's gene. You've now got a set of mutations that you know are linked to that particular. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And this is growing all the time. You know, the test directory is not fixed. It's reviewed continually. There's, there's new versions of it updated. Um, on, a, on an annual basis and sometimes uh, there are actually tests that are still in the, the, the research domain that patients can access through clinical trials and eventually these will migrate to the test directory. So um, it's a really great model for developing the NHS and providing um, diagnoses, prognoses and, and um, novel therapeutics for cancer patients. And what are the main types of cancers that genomic testing can be used to improve the treatment for? And is it just cancers or are there other conditions as well? Well, my, my focus is, is cancer. Um, and so in, in the Lancashire and South Cumbria area, we have um, a centralised um, lung molecular testing service and there are um, key staff that work in the histopathology specifically are on working on molecular markers associated with um, potential therapies for uh, lung cancer. So where tumours test positive for these particular markers, it means that the tumour is susceptible to um, immunotherapies. and um, Again, this is another area developing. So where um, whole genome sequencing can look at a, a massive amount of data that opens up potentially um, a huge number of, of treatments that, that could be, um, that patients could be eligible for in future. Um, whole genome sequencing is available as a, as a standard of care test for sarcoma currently and acute hematological malignancy and also for all um, 
solid tumours in paediatric cases. We have staff in like South Cumbria who are working as seconded uh, biomedical scientists to the programme and we're upskilling them at this interface between the genomic service in Manchester and ophthalmology laboratories so that they can support the, um, the delivery of this new service and this test directory and um, guide clinicians through getting access to this so that we know that somebody who lives in Barrow-Vanest, for example, will get the same service as someone who, who lives next door to the Genomic Laboratory Hub. So it's all about making sure eligible people, um, wherever they may be in the Northwest, get access to this testing. Mm. And what do you think then are the main challenges for integrating genomic testing into the NHS for biomedical scientists? So this is a, a really, really good question, Jordan. I'm glad you asked it because there's been a lot of focus on the Northwest Genomic Laboratory Hub and, and the hubs in the other regional service. Um, because you know they, they needed to get set up first and foremost. So there's a lot of upskilling required there and uh, installation of new equipment. Mm-hmm. And then there's also lots of education ongoing, engaging nurses, pharmacists, medics. Um, and uh, it, it, you'll, you'll know yourself, it's commonplace for the lab staff to kind of like fall through the cracks a little bit. And um, mm-hmm. there's a sense that that has, has happened. But increasingly now, um, you know, the, the, the histopathologists and the pathology staff are being engaged and we're kind of leading the way in Lancashire, South Cumbria we, with our pilot programme of upskilling the technical staff. So we have a collaboration between four trusts in Preston, Blackpool, Blackburn and uh, Lancaster. And um, our biomedical scientists are taking ownership of these requests and developing um, tissue processing pathways in this genomic era. Mm. And uh, they're they're undertaking um, molecular pathology education at Manchester University, which is um, funded by Health Education England. And... um, all, all this learning and upskilling is going to create a really great team that can standardise service provision across our network. Um, we're sharing best practice. We're doing site visits, you know, and these people that ordinarily would never have worked together, um, but we're becoming embedded in the infrastructure uh, locally, regionally, nationally. Um, we're involved in creating new test pathways that never existed before. We're informing decisions about um, service redesign and doing lots of auditing um, and just, you know, I've got a really great uh, enthusiastic and and clever team of people distributed around the the region, I'm proud to say. Mm, So a lot of areas right now to concentrate on to get this genomic testing service up and running uh, across the region. Definitely. Uh, uh, just before I hand you over to Rob for the quick fire round, I wanted to touch on COVID because I know that during the pandemic, you were involved in a large scale initiative to set up the testing service in the region. So yes, can you tell yes. us a bit about that and have you been involved in genomic testing during the pandemic itself? Yeah. 
So, um, so if we re- rewind the clock back to March last year, it was only sort of news was just filtering in, wasn't it, that there was this thing happening in China, in Wuhan. Yeah. And there was talk in the tea room, you know, this, this is going to be big. And, uh, and then um, in the space of a couple of weeks, a miracle happened in um, Preston Microbiology and they set up the, the technology and introduced validated tests to undertake coronavirus testing. And um, this was a really important step because we, we needed to be in a position where we could send patients down the line of, you know, are, do they need to be isolated or do they not? Mm. Um, and, you know, it's a credit to the team there for having done that. So I was brought in because I had some molecular pathology skills already. And so I, I ended up doing coronavirus testing. Um, and this involved um, detecting genes specific to the coronavirus. Um, and that came about after the coronavirus gen- genome had been sequenced. So there was a lot of um, a lot happening in the research domain very quickly to get to this point. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that, that went on for quite a few months last year. Um, the, they were operating a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week service, and it was a huge burden on, on the staff, uh, really tough times. Um, but it's, it's all kind of calmed down now. There's, you know, like an extra 40-odd people were <laughs> eventually employed to share the burden of that. Um, I'm also involved in a, a small project called the Excavir study. So this is looking at immune responses of um, patients to uh, being infected with coronavirus. So it's comparing um, immune responses of people that haven't been affected with those that have a mild infection or those that have had um, a serious infection requiring hospitalisation. And so <clears throat> I'm doing the um, DNA extractions on that project, which is being operate, uh, be, being organised by the immuno- immunology department at Preston. Mm. So there's still lots of work going on behind the scenes and to do with COVID. And I just wanted to touch upon genomic testing of the coronavirus patients i mean how useful is it from a clinical perspective to identify what strain of coronavirus someone is is infected with and have they been doing tests for that reason yes so a good question again jordan so as as you know viruses do uh, mutate and every now and again they'll talk about another mutation in the news and the reason they know about this is because they are tracking um, changes in the genome and in samples of patients that have been tested as coronavirus positive. So um, a proportion of positive patient samples are sent away um, for that sequencing analysis. Um, but, but also it's not just about the, the viral genome, it's about the host genome as well and, and how the interaction between those two genomes. So there's been an organisation which has been looking at the human genomes, again, of patients either mildly affected or severely affected by coronavirus. And I know they've identified several genes that um, are involved in predisposing someone to um, being more poorly and more severely affected. 
And also, uh, as a consequence of that, they've been able to identify some treatments. So, for example, there is a um, rheumatoid arthritis treatment that has been repurposed and is is being given to um, coronavirus patients. So, um, yeah, it's it's incredible where genomics comes in. It's everywhere and and you don't even know it. Yeah, Im- impacts everywhere. Yeah. It sounds really exciting. Okay, then. Well, that's all from me. And I'll hand you over to Rob now for the quick fire round. Okay, Deborah. So we now have the quick fire round, which is where I'm going to give you a couple of options. And you've got to just tell me which is best. And you can explain why if you want, or you can just leave it as a one word answer. So, tea or coffee? Definitely tea, but it must be decaffeinated. Casual or smart? Smart, you can never be overdressed. Online or face-to-face? Tricky. You can't hug someone online, but I'm a bit introverted. I'll have to go, I'll have to sit on the fence there. I can't decide. You can go 50-50, a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is the cup half full or half empty? Full. And finally, abseiling or bungee jumping? Sailing. I did a recent abseil for Cancer Research UK and uh, launched myself 150 foot off the top of Liverpool Anglican Cathedral. And it was awesome. Brilliant. I thought you had done. I saw a picture of you doing it. So <laughs> that's where that strange question came from. But um, right, well, that is everything, folks. Deborah, thank you so much for your time. It's really appreciated and lovely to chat to you. Thank you so much, well, Deborah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Hello and welcome to this month's Lab Life. Now taking part in public engagement activities has become a really important and rewarding way of raising awareness of biomedical science. Over the years, IBMS members have taken part in activities ranging from inspiring students and school pupils to take up a career in biomedical science to attempting to break a world record. Manchester-based IBMS licentiate Charlotte Felton is especially passionate about public engagement and has recently taken part in several different initiatives. These include founding the popular at Inspire BMS Twitter account and taking part in the STEM Ambassador Programme. I spoke to Charlotte about these projects and we also chatted about her new patient-facing role in critical care science. I started by asking Charlotte to tell us a bit more about herself. Hi everyone, my name is Charlotte Felton. I'm a HCPC registered biomedical scientist and SDP trainee in critical care science. I've also just completed my MSc in haematology and transfusion science. And over the last sort of 11 months, I've been working within bacterial screening as a Banfar biomedical scientist, working on uh, the production of safe lab products and um, people management. What is it about public engagement that interests you? I don't know. I seem to have a lot going on at the moment with that. Yeah. Um, And it's just something that I really enjoy. I think really it's come from a place of being quite annoyed that as a biomedical scientist, you're not represented really as you should be, or you're not known about as much as you should be. And I think that I can speak for all of us when I say that. Um, So I created the sort of Inspire BMS account on... um, Twitter that was in August last year I think Mm. um and it was just about bringing us together um networking and and sharing ideas 
um, but also for sort of future scientists and, and students to, to sort of have a look at what's going on and to connect students to scientists to if they wanted to ask any questions. Um, we did the day in the life. So we did where uh, with the IBMS. So we sort of um, celebrating scientists from, from different backgrounds and within their separate sort of specialisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was just, you know, some it also I, I, now I call it something that's student friendly, but it's also for professionals because I think it's really important that we have sort of um, a voice for students as well, because students aren't always aware of the requirements to become HCP registered biomedical scientists. Um, some might even be studying a, a non-IBMS accredited degree and, and don't realise how that might affect them further down the line. Obviously, we've got the, um, you know, degree assessment and things like that. But so I can imagine and and some students, you know, I was lucky to get a placement, but some students aren't always lucky to get a placement and, and to sort of get the registration portfolio done. And I know a lot mm. leave university feeling stressed out and really worried that they can never become sort of a biomedical scientist. But really, there's lots of different routes sort of to get there. They will get there, but it's just about knowing that they can get there and having someone to speak to about it. Yeah. I, what, I wonder, what kind of content then do you usually have on the Inspired BMS account? It's a bit of a, a mix-up, really. So we try and retweet sort of everything that's relevant to, to students, but also just celebrating people as well, sort of when they get the first Band 5 job or trying to spread awareness of biomedical scientists or how we can do little things that might increase the sort of um, public's awareness of us so it's it's a bit of a mix-up really I did bring on um, uh, Tamina and Sophie to help with the account they sort of retweet relevant things for me and, and they might sort of um, put different things on there too I feel now the direction it will go in is sort of bridging the gap between students and scientists and how we can help each other sort of grow and develop the sort of future scientists for the future. Can you tell us a little bit more about the STEM ambassador program doing and yes. why is it why is it important for us to uh, like spread awareness of the profession to younger generation you can go through sort of different routes if you want to be a STEM ambassador but for me I think it'd be working with small children so but still there's still barriers because of COVID so this is sort of something which is on hold at the moment but it's sort of um, working with local schools even if it's just to provide short videos for assemblies to to know you know let you know what a scientist is because Often children have quite a different perception of what a scientist is, what a scientist looks like and what they do to so just sort of everyday people like what we are. Um, it's just so it makes it more look more achievable because it is something which is easily achievable um, if you go down the right route. And also maybe just little after school classes or, or clubs sort of um, to engage with them and, and because there is a load of uh, good resources out there for children. I was asked to do um, a presentation for some undergraduate students. So that was just um, about my journey and, and how I got to where I am today. And what I think that they can do um, to increase the chances maybe of getting a placement or even getting a bit of work experience. And also just uh, reiterating to, to not worry too much about other people's sort of um, journeys and progress at their own rate as to what they feel comfortable with not to have too much pressure on themselves because often when you're hearing these presentations and you see someone else's journey it just seems like you will never be able to get there with all the different things that they've done 
Um, I mean, I come from quite a, you know, normal background and I had my first child at 18. I then went to university. Um, so I think it's just just sort of letting people know that no matter where you've come from or, or what you do or what you choose in life, that you can always achieve what you want to achieve and to not feel um, too pressured into sort of being the best at everything. So I think that that's been the sort of main message from the presentation, really. But the the main the main part of it, the main body of the presentation, is um, just the routes to HCPC registration. So um, if if students can't get a placement, they can always um, you know be an MLA and, and maybe go go through it that way. So it's just talking about the different routes, really. With all this public engagement work you do, you're, you're full-time, you've been a full-time band five uh, biomedical scientist. You, you know, you have to balance, I'm sure, childcare and family life. Yeah. Uh, how do you find the time to do all this public <laughs> engagement work as well? And like, what tips would you have for uh, another biomedical scientist who wants to get involved in public engagement? Everybody asks me this, how, oh, I don't know how you find the time and, but I think it was just, it's something that you that you have to want to do. You can't just do it because, you you know, you think it's going to look good or, or whatever. It's something that you want to do. There has to be sort of a, like a main driving force to behind why you want to do it. Mm. Time-wise, I, I, I don't know how I've, I've found the time really. Um, I think it's to be honest once you've get, got everything set up and you've you've sort of engaged and you know you decide what route you want to go down with it it, it can become quite easy but it depends then on on the commit the different commitments you take on so sometimes there might be days on the inspire bms account where there's only a few things retweeted but then some days there might be a, a video that's made um you know from from a scientist background and what they've done so it just depends you've you've really got to be careful with it because Sometimes you can take on too much and, and become burnt out. But I think you, you just need to keep the motivation as to that to that main message as to why you, you started it in the first place. I literally created just a, just a Twitter account and made a few nice graphics and then started getting in touch with other biomedical scientists. And it seems to have taken off quite well. So in the year, it's, it's grown to sort of just over 700 um followers um but to me it's, it was never about the followers it was just about getting people chatting and talking um and co- connecting us all because we come from all different parts of the country something even different parts of the world so you're just about to move from a band five biomedical scientist in hematology to a patient facing critical care role why are you making the transition so i applied for it and, and the sort of um main driving force behind that was just patient contact because often throughout sort of doing my registration portfolio then moving into NHSBT um we're always hearing about patients and we always know the names and most times always know what's going on with them um especially patients who you see quite a lot popping up sort of um cancer patients and and, and patients with sort of long-term disorders and I just wanted to feel more connected to them um, and feel like I was doing um, more sort of in person for the patients that was the main driving force behind wanting to move from the lab sort of to the to the bedside. So what actually does the role involve because I imagine you're still a biomedical scientist right so what is the role? So, So I'll stay I can stay registered as a biomedical scientist 
mm. um, with the HCPC, but this is going to be clinical scientist training. Mm. It's, it, the training sort of gives you a broad overview of sort of um, cardiac, respiratory, critical care, um, vascular and, and neurophysiology. But it's really dependent on the on the trust you're in. So, so up here in Manchester, I think they're um, quite big on renal replacement therapy, whereas down where I'll be going in Cambridge, it's sort of um, the UK's leading heart and lung specialist hospital. So we'll see a lot of sort of patients who are needing heart transplants or lung transplants. Um, so you sort of work with the transplant team as well. But I suppose day to day, it can it can vary really depending on, you know, in what, what area of the hospital you're working in. So it could be putting in pick lines or it could be um, point of care ultrasound, looking at heart and lung function. You could be training sort of um, nurses and junior doctors on sort of the medical devices found at the um, bedside. Mm. Uh, there's also a bit of lab management sort of involved in it as well, sort of bedside lab management so blood gas analysis and, and coagulation profiles as well excellent well thanks for chatting to us about it and oh, no uh, taking the time you can follow charlotte's twitter account using the handle at inspire underscore bms and find out more about her public engagement initiatives in the show notes thanks so much for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.